Hello everyone and welcome to another episode of Mastermind.fm. In this episode we'll be interviewing Shane Mullen from BlockFi. Now BlockFi is one of my favorite crypto lending and borrowing platforms. So the aim of this episode was to really learn how BlockFi was developed, how it works, what are the risks and what are the benefits for us as investors. Also from the borrowing perspective, because if you are lending crypto for yield, another interesting area that you might consider is borrowing against your crypto collateral. So we really delve into these two different products that BlockFi provides, as well as their crypto credit card offering and their trading facilities. Now BlockFi has been growing amazingly in the past year, so I really encourage you to take a look at BlockFi. You might not want to give up custody of your cryptos, but I think that in reward for giving up your custody, what they are providing is something beneficial for a lot of crypto holders in terms of generating yield as well as being able to borrow against your crypto and this has obvious tax benefits because you would not need to sell your crypto and thus not trigger capital gains tax which can be a hefty tax to pay in many jurisdictions so without further ado let's have this episode with shane which I found really interesting and I hope you enjoy as well. As always, if you love what we're creating here, give us a five-star review on iTunes and you can also reach us on podcast at mastermind.fm. Enjoy the episode. Hi, Shane. Welcome to mastermind.fm. And for the first questions, let's start off with a bank. I would like you to illustrate the case for borrowing and lending in the crypto space. And then perhaps you could paint the trajectory of BlockFi. I know that BlockFi has been growing incredibly over the past year, especially. But maybe you can give us a bit of a history of how BlockFi fits into the whole borrowing and lending trajectory. Yeah, for sure. So I think the, the best place to start is to just think about the demographic and the world of investors that own cryptocurrency in some capacity, right? There is a, obviously today, a massive increase in the number of wallets that are out there. Based in, you know, when we started the company in 2017, the landscape was a lot different. There were a lot less, obviously, wallet holders, but a lot less institutions also in the space as well. And really back then, you know, there was never an Still to this day is, you know, now beginning to be more of in the periphery, but uh, there was no way of accessing financial services all from the asset that is cryptocurrency, right? The only real action you could take was buying or selling and then hodling, right? So you buy, it appreciates, you hold and you sell. Zach, our co-founder back in 2017 said, well, look, I have a lot of Bitcoin right? Personally, on my balance sheet, my personal balance sheet, I don't want to sell it, right? Because the tax implication of selling from a cap gains perspective in the US could be, you know, pretty high. And I want to leverage these assets as collateral the same way that I could use equities, right? If I own a bunch of Apple stock, uh, my home, right? As collateral, I want to leverage Bitcoin on my balance sheet as collateral so I could take out a USD denominated loan. And he could not find a single place to do that, right? He went to his bank 
his bank laughed him out of the bank was like we are <laughs> we're not considering bitcoin as a fundamental asset that we can underwrite to provide you with a usd denominated loan and that is where the beginning of the business first kind of financial service product using crypto as the foundation was established where our first product we came to market with in 2017 was the uh, bitcoin or crypto collateralized lending for retail so exactly the use case that Zach was not able to accomplish with his bank, uh, we've created that value in that product so that, you know, Gene, you or Joseph, if you own crypto and you have that crypto on BlockFi, you're able to collateralize it or pledge it uh, to BlockFi and we will issue you a USD denominated loan at a 35 or 50% loan to value ratio. Those Rates are typically between 7 and 9% annualized, and it's an interest-only payment until maturity. So you could imagine, right, this product for the vast amount of holders of crypto really started to become something that was of, of in high demand because it never existed really before you know, we came into the space to provide it. So that's on the borrowing side, right? That's retail, retail borrowing. As we started to gain right, significant traction with holders of these assets, investors of these assets, realizing they could collateralize and use this Bitcoin right, in the form of being able to receive a USD-denominated loan, we also realized that you know, we have the ability to use some of these assets right, that are being pledged or not necessarily pledged, but use some of the assets that are not being pledged right, from some of our holders and effectively lend them to other institutional counterparties and then provide yield to the retail investor. This is where the, you know, call it high yield crypto interest account blossomed, right? Which is the, you know, the, the, the lending kind of portion, if you want to call it that, right? A retail individual lending crypto to BlockFi, BlockFi paying an interest rate to that particular retail individual, uh, and then BlockFi, you know, relending that out and making a spread, right, in the institutional markets, which we can get into. And that is where the or BlockFi interest account product uh, really blossomed. Uh, and then fast forward to today, yeah, the borrowing and lending pieces are two of the largest, you know, revenue generators for the business. Excellent. So maybe we should take an example. Let's say there's a crypto holder who wants to generate a yield. I think from a lending perspective, that's the biggest attraction of such services. Now, I, I think one of the first questions, apart from is the company reputable, which we can get into later, is what happens with my money, with my cryptos, once I put them in BlockFi. And of course, there's a big concern with many people with the not your keys, not your crypto saying, right? You're giving up self-custody. You are, on the other hand, getting a yield, which there's no other way you can get. But what happens with the cryptos once we put them in BlockFi's custody? Yeah, so the cryptos are deposited onto our platform. They're custodied with uh, Gemini, who, you know, one of the largest custodian providers in the world. We also work with Fidelity, Digital Assets, who has a new custodial business as well. And then, you know, on the institutional side, we have a variety of different kind of business practices that we do to generate yield. Major tier one 
credit institutions, right, will borrow crypto to make markets. Others will borrow crypto for, you know, market neutral activities. So just earning yield with the price goes up or down. We have a set of institutional borrowers who are borrowing for uh, futures and, and, and basis trading. Um, and then we also have a variety of, you know, USD denominated loans that are for working capital, um, you know, and a, and a variety of other kind of uh, call it public market trust arbitration or or subscription financing basis. So there's a variety of, of use cases there. Um, we, you know, are traditionally going to be, well, we don't commingle like any of our current cryptocurrencies. So if you're, you know, depositing Bitcoin and getting paid in Bitcoin interest, your Bitcoin is being lent and getting paid in either USD or Bitcoin as well. So there's no, you know, commingling there. And, you know, at any moment in time, we allow for our investors to withdraw their funds off the platform if need be, right? So there's always a set of cushion in terms of withdrawal capacity for anybody that's uh, on the platform. So that I would say is probably the best, you know, kind of movement of where things go. We can we can dive into each one of those a little bit more specific though, because they're each one we can unpack a bit. Yeah, I think, I mean, for someone who's not a financial expert, perhaps, they would be a bit vague, you know, uh, these, all these activities. So I think it, it's worth diving into exactly what happens and what, what each of these, especially in terms of for, for the client side, I think what really the client wants to know is how much risk am I taking, right? First in the custody itself and second in the lending activities. So perhaps that's, that's where we need to go. When with expanding, yeah, for sure. I mean, on the custody piece, right? The you know, Gemini has billions of uh, assets under custody. You know, air gapped, cold storage on a hardware security module. You know, very similar to the way that you would treat your own custody if you self stored it, right? In terms of the financial risk, right? Meaning, or financial and credit risk, right? Because this, this question comes up a lot where it's, okay, I'm depositing my crypto, my Bitcoin with BlockFi, and you guys are lending it out to an institution. How do I know that that institution is A, credit worthy, B, my risk is covered, C, the, we're not going to lose any money, right? Some of the things that I think that we like to talk about, right, in, in these types of settings and on our website and, and things of that nature is, you know, few different things we look at when we're lending crypto to a particular institution to earn right a, a yield. The first is what is the credit profile of that particular institution, right? What are their financials? What are the fundamentals of the business, right? How much cash do they have? Do we have a track record with them? Have we worked with them in the past in some other capacity? Are they public, right? Are they, who are their board members? Who are their partners? All these things, right, go into these inputs, go into this underwriting equation. And we are really strict, right? We're actually really conservative in who we say yes or no to. And then all of these go into that particular bucket and then we output a tier, right? And that tier effectively says, okay, this particular person or this particular group institution requires over collateralization, right? And then at what level? 
right? Or this particular institution is so creditworthy, right? It's Goldman Sachs level creditworthy that we don't require the same type of collateralization as we do for a tier two or tier three, right? What is over collateralization, right? We get that question a lot too. What that means is that if you are looking to take out a USD denominated loan or a crypto denominated loan, you have to pledge with BlockFi more collateral than the principal value of the loan. Example, let's say a hedge fund comes to us, they're in the US, we put them through the underwriting model, right? It outputs, let's say, a tier two. We say we need, you know, 120 or 130% over collateralization, right? For a USD denominated loan. What that means is that if that particular institution wants to borrow $100,000 from us. So let's say, in this case, $1 million from us. That's a little bit more reasonable. They have to give BlockFi $1.3 million worth of Bitcoin. And we hold that Bitcoin in our wallet, right? 24-7 liquid market that we can trade. And we hold that until the maturity of that loan is then repaid to us. Then we release it, they get their Bitcoin back, right? So that's the fundamentals of over collateralization, where we actually have more collateral than the actual balance of the loan to the institution, which creates a cushion for us to, as an organization in the event that Bitcoin swings up or down wildly at a you know massive kind of financial spike, right? There's also a construct called margin call, right? And margin release. I'm not sure how familiar you guys are with this, but it's a relatively simple concept. So in that example I just gave you, 1.3 million of Bitcoin is sitting within an account at BlockFi. We control it. Let's say the price of Bitcoin swings down and all of a sudden that 1.3 is now 1.2 or 1.25. Well, we'll have what's called a margin call, which is a trigger, price trigger, right? Where when Bitcoin hits that particular price, we immediately are going to, well, A, we'll have a kind of a warning right to the institution saying, hey, we're getting close. You guys need to fill up and add more Bitcoin to this particular loan, or we're going to liquidate at this particular price. If it ends up hitting that price, we liquidate, we keep the proceeds, and then the loan is, you know, is canceled or, or finished. In that capacity, we are not losing any money, right? Even when the market went, I think it was almost a year ago to like, couple days ago, the market dropped all the way to, you know, 3000 in the 3000s per Bitcoin. We did not lose a dollar because we had risk management practices and margin call practices in place that helped prevent those types of issues. So um, I would say the, the, the credit risk and the over collateralization is such an important part of our business model. And it is really like, thing, you know, something that we think about, I would say priority number one you know, and then, you know, security risk kind of one and two interchangeably. Very interesting. Uh, just a couple more questions before I pass on to my dad. In terms of the collateral that we were speaking about, the over collateralization, once that collateral is in BlockFi's account, do you again use it for other purposes like trading or is it no, just? Or no, yeah, the, any pledge collateral is just sitting in a custodial account, not earning interest. It's not being re-lent out. It's not being traded. It's just sitting there, either appreciating or depreciating. And, and is there any insurance on that collateral or what I would deposit in terms of crypto? I mean, we personally 
at BlockFi don't have an insurance product to offer to our customers. Uh, Gemini has an insurance wrapper around their custodial offering. In the event, though, that there was to be some significant loss event, BlockFi equity shareholders would actually get wiped out before right, current clients. So you are protected in that capacity. And we've raised, we just closed our most recent fundraise of $350 million, Series D. And we have, you know, I, I want to say around $500 million in the bank. So there's a tremendous amount of, of, of protection there, you know, before anything could happen. Yes. In fact, I, I heard Zach speaking about this point in another podcast. And as a, as a client myself, it gave me quite a lot of reassurance. And perhaps we should expand a bit on BlockFi itself and the, the money that has been raised, the kind of size of BlockFi are, are, because we're not talking about a fly by night operation here. This company, although quite young in terms of years, has expanded a lot and has been backed by some of the biggest names in the space with lots of money raised. So perhaps we should expand a bit on that as well. Yeah, for sure. So when I first started, I started here about a little, like a little less than a year ago. We were just to give you guys some like optics from a from a numbers perspective. We had about thirty thousand clients. This is in in July of last year. We had raised just closed our Series C at about a four hundred million dollar valuation post. We were doing about two point five million in revenue per month, and we had probably five billion or so assets on the platform. Right. Fast forward to today, we have. 270,000 clients on the platform across US and international, which is really exciting. We've got about 16 billion in AUM or assets under management on the platform. We've raised an additional $350 million from some really reputable names, which I can talk about in a bit. And we do about 50 million, 40, 50 million in revenue on a monthly basis. So really across the board, there's been between a five to seven X growth over like a seven month period, which is just, I think, a testament simply to the fact that A, Bitcoin has been an incredible tailwind for us, right? There's been tremendous amount of institutional adoption. People are starting to really take it seriously as a store of value. The U.S., I would say, and printing money has definitely been, you know, it's, it's, look, it's the Fed's decision to do what they want to do with, you know, helping the economy, but from an inflation perspective and a hedge against it, right? That I think has helped a lot with inflows into Bitcoin. And then once you get to the point where digital assets are starting to become more of a, uh, adoptable, uh, asset to invest in, right? You need the infrastructure providers like a BlockFi to help scale right, the industry. And we've really just rode that wave in a, in a really awesome capacity. So as I mentioned earlier, we have BlockFi interest accounts. You can earn up to 8.6% on stablecoin, 6% on Bitcoin, 5.25% on Ethereum. We've got the lending product or borrowing product where you can pledge your crypto as collateral, borrow at 35, 50% LTV, 7 to 9% annualized rates, very competitive. But we now offer trading as well. So now you can buy and sell right on our platform. Very soon you'll be able to instantly deposit funds onto the platform via ACH. And then we're also launching like the fourth pillar product that I think is going to be the most significant in terms of kind of gen pop or mainstream crypto adoption, 
which is our BlockFi Visa Bitcoin Rewards credit card, right? Which is a very similar product to any other credit card that exists, right? You apply, you get underwritten, you get a limit, you spend credit, you pay that limit down with fiat. The only difference is that in the reward scheme, we're paying 1.5% back on all purchases in Bitcoin, right? Not in cash, not in travel rights, in Bitcoin, which immediately allows for folks who are maybe a little skeptic or on the fence to start spending like they normally would and now earning Bitcoin, becoming investors, becoming passively involved in the space. Um, really excited to, to launch that product, probably going to be coming out in the June timeframe. Yeah, I've been following that as well. Uh, you mentioned March 2020, and I think we should also speak about that event because many people had predicted that it would be the death moment for many platforms like yours. However, BlockFi sailed through it from the outside, at least without any significant problems. Could you walk us through how BlockFi protected itself in that situation? And especially in terms of borrowers, again, borrowing sounds very attractive, but there's always this big fear of what happens if the margin call is, is triggered, what if crypto goes down 60-50%? How do you protect borrowers as well, who are also your part of your retail client base as well? Yeah, I think um, that event was obviously very shocking right, to the entire crypto community. I also think that we live in a world very different from from then. Even though it's not, it wasn't that long ago, I think the the overall kind of infrastructure of the you know macroeconomic kind of long term investment players that are now you know in at buy orders in the you know nineteen twenties and thirties et cetera uh, never existed right when when something like that or back in in March of, of last year, which is just a crazy right testament to the growth of Bitcoin. Seeing names like Mass Mutual, Tesla. You know, now MasterCard is in the space, Square, right? There's a there's a long laundry list of very high reputable, you know, tier one A companies that are now either you know subscribing to a you know synthetic exposure of Bitcoin or physically have spot Bitcoin right on their balance sheet. So that is a huge difference uh, in itself. One thing I think that's pretty unique about our business, and I don't know if a lot of people know about this, but our chief risk officer, Rene uh, Van Kirsten, he actually has had a long career in uh, you know equity structured finance, but he was before BlockFi working at BAML, Bank of America, Merrill Lynch. And he ran the entire equity structured finance group there um, and, and prime brokerage, which effectively, you know, in the similar landscape as to how we lend against collateralized assets. Uh, they did the similar. They did a similar thing, lending against uh, you know collateral, but the collateral was were equity, right? Equities and, and other uh, equity type equivalents. His team had built incredibly robust margin call and risk management features in the event that you know equity markets or different types of maybe non liquid investments that they're lending against, if they had wild swings from risk perspective. They would be covered, right? And they wouldn't lose any money. And he and he never never lost any money 
to date and, you know, was, was there through the crisis. So he saw something with BlockFi when he joined in 2017, which was we can use the same fundamental framework that we did at Bank of America to provide USD denominated loans to, you know, collateralized borrowers and institutional side. And one of the values is that Bitcoin itself is actually way more liquid and settles way faster than the traditional equities market. So he said to himself, I've got this risk, risk management structure that I built with a product that is settles longer and potentially less liquid. Those are two incredible value props that allowed me to build something even more powerful than what I had in my previous role. And that's the idea. That's like the, the message that he took to, to building our business. And because of that framework and that ideology, we were able to come out of that 2000, you know, that, that year ago event very successful. And funny enough, because we were so successful, our competitors were not successful. They had a lot, they were underwater on a bunch uh, of these, these positions that they had. And therefore we were actually able to come in and say, Hey, do you need a, you know, we, we, Hey, institutional investor, we actually are, are okay. We have crypto to lend. We can come in and lend USD or whatever it may be. You know, let's start a relationship. And it created a nice wedge for us to spearhead our institutional business and really take a, you know, that flywheel approach into where we're at today. So all in all, look, I mean, it's scary. Things can happen. I'm not going to sit here and say that Bitcoin is never going to go to back to, to that place. I don't know the answer. But what I do know is that we're well equipped from a structural perspective to handle it. Yeah. Well, listeners can maybe believe Michael Saylor in that re regard. <laughs> He's got some quotes on yeah. how Bitcoin won't go back down significantly. Yeah. But, I mean, yeah. I think that I think if, if we're talking, if we're having this conversation a year ago, the probability of a steep decline is a lot higher than this conversation today. I, I would say so. Yeah. And uh, about risk, I also would mention that there's an interesting interview with BlockFi's Zach Prince and uh, the chief risk officer on BlockFi's blog, which I came across just a few days ago, and I felt quite interesting in terms of what you were explaining just a few minutes ago. So yeah, just uh, let my dad come in with a few questions. Hello, Shane. Um, uh, I'm Joseph. I'm Jean's father. I'm 65 years old with a financial background. If I look back and uh, share my views and my many of my colleagues and friends' views about cryptos, I would say that initially they were derided. They were seen as some invention by these young whiskets, something that will burst by time and... Um, uh, when there was that, what was perceived to be a bubble that would burst, and it burst in 2017. And many people thought that um, many authorities and many jurisdictions would clamp down on cryptos because they were saying and claiming that cryptos were being used for bad purposes, uh, for drug dealings, for weapons, for other things. And they were not regulated. Um, there was a lot of uncertainty about the taxation and its effect 
on cryptos. And many people of my generation found it a little bit difficult to understand how how to manage, you know, these wallets, how to keep them safe, who, who is behind all this. Therefore, my questions will focus on this. I, I found your website uh, very clear, very interesting. And to put uh, other people's mind at rest, people especially of, of my generation who are getting intrigued by uh, the recent spike in, in price as well of cryptos and the adoption of cryptos by institutional investors. And it seems now that this might become a snowball that no one will stop. Whereas before there were a lot of doubts as to whether the authorities here or there would put all the spokes in the wheel to stop the growth of cryptos. Now we are seeing a momentum that is growing and growing. Looking at your organization, let's start with the people behind it. I was uh, quite impressed by the number of high-profile executives like you and your colleagues, because if I'm going to trust an organization with my money, I have to know who's behind it. And it's one thing mentioning a name that is well-known worldwide, and it's different trusting an organization that has been um, in place since 2017. Let's start with my first question then. Your organization, your setup, is it dependent on some key players? I noticed that many of your team came from institutional companies, and I think that they brought also with them a lot of useful contacts. Can you please give us a bit of a background on, on the team that you have? Sure, definitely. Uh, it's a really important part. I, I think, honestly, team is probably the, the most important part of building a successful business uh, in whatever, whatever you're doing. Our co-founders, Zach and Flory, both come from the venture capital-backed fintech space. So Zach had historically well, originally worked in, in the advertising space. He moved into uh, a company called Orchard Platform, which was in the online uh, lending space. And Zach was really able to see the beginning of financial or technology companies, right, transforming into financial product, you know, technology companies, offering things that the banks just couldn't do as effectively, couldn't do as fast couldn't do it as, at the same cost. And so he built his career there. He ended up working at uh, a few other uh, lending companies. And then Flory, conversely, started her career in financial services and ended up working at uh, a small business lender called Bond Street. So naturally, you can imagine that the impetus of starting the business was generally around security le- sec- uh, secured lending because both of them had a tremendous amount of experience doing that. Renee, to my point earlier, has had a you know very long career in traditional uh, financial services, uh, more specifically at Bank of America within the equity structures group there. And then Adam Healy, our chief security officer, really like one of the, the, the crypto you know aficionados when it comes to security. He's been in the space for a very long time. He had worked at uh, companies like Bax. He's worked at the Pentagon. He's had, you know, a really uh, deep, deep 
experience with just general, you know, cryptocurrency security. And he heads up that entire team on, on that side of the house. Our institutional team, so our team that is going out and finding these institutional borrowers who are, you know, highly rated from a credit perspective, et cetera, are all, all come from the traditional or tr- kind of traditional crypto uh, institutional services space. So places like Numura, Morgan Stanley, uh, we just hired somebody from the Gold World Gold Council, his name's Greg uh, Collette. JP Morgan, you know, firms in that nature. So also very reputable firms. And then our legal team, which is kind of the last team to touch on before kind of product and eng is uh, led by Jonathan Mayers, who is, you know, deputy counsel at Renaissance Technologies, right? One of the largest hedge funds in the world. Um, and their team is now, you know, multiplying in terms of size from a lot of very reputable legal firms. So, you know, all in all, we've got around 500 and 50 people at the company spanning across a ton of different financial service, technology, legal, right? Cryptocurrency backgrounds. And we've, you know, only raised money from venture capital or, you know, institutional backing. We've never, you know, created our own token, raised an ICO, done anything like that. Uh, purely institutional capital raised from, uh, from, from an equity perspective. If I may jump in there, I think it's a, it's an important point about the tokens because many people look at other platforms, they see their token. There's a lot of hype about these tokens and how they can appreciate and value. Could you give us an overview of why BlockFi decided not to use a token and how the token strategy works for these kinds of platforms? Yeah, and I, I think it was just simply like, a regulatory decision uh, on Zach's part. So, Joseph, another uh, thing to keep in mind from a, a regulatory perspective at BlockFi is that we are uh, licensed at the federal level in the U.S. for a money service business license, an MSB license. That was uh, going to be my next question. Actually. <laughs> <laughs> and then we also are, uh, we have money transmitter licenses at the state level. Right. And we also have lending licenses at the state level. So we do have all necessary licensing uh, required to, you know, participate in this space. We're not a bank. Right. So we don't have FDIC insurance, but, you know, we have taken all the steps necessary to be licensed appropriately so that we could provide, you know, value in terms of yield to our customers for depositing crypto on our platform and scale, you know, outside the U.S. into other international markets. Looking at your website, I, I went into the career section. And uh, quite honestly, if I were younger, I would have been probably tempted to apply with, uh, with your organization. All the adverts were very professional, I would say. The next question that came to mind was, but all these vacancies, is it growing too fast? Is it because of high staff turnover? What are your comments on that? Yeah, so... All these jobs are new, so posted within the last few weeks. We have very little turnover, as you can imagine. We're, you know, a so-called rocket ship, right? In the U.S., growth is just moving in a great direction. And yeah, I mean, in all honesty, if anybody listening to this podcast is looking to get into the the crypto space, you know, we're looking for you know the best talent that's out there. Part of the Series D raise 
which was, as I mentioned, $350 billion is to hire and bring on, you know, double the amount of employees that we have today and also expand geographically. We have a lot of roles open in the Europe region, more roles open in the APAC region, um, and we want to continue to expand uh, as we grow. Looking at banks, uh, we, the old-timers, um, traditionally used to put our money uh, in the banks or buy some equities, etc. But now the banks are giving us nothing, or basically nothing. Now, the banks, when they look at you and your type of organizations, are they looking at you and uh, seeing you as a threat? Would they react maybe and they do something similar to you going forward? What do you think? It's a good question. I mean, look, you know, what we do, what we're doing is relatively similar to a, a banking-like model, right, in, in some capacity. I think where, like, banks banks do not have a very large you know, deposit of cheap Bitcoin cost of capital to lend to institutions. It's it's just not it's not something that they're that they have or they're going to enter into. Um, I think you're going to see rather than like competition between banks and crypto fintechs. I think you'll see more uh, firms partnering. So I think you'll see you know banks partnering with crypto firms to offer certain type of products to their potential users. I think you you might see like more on the institutional and custody side. Right. So banks custodying assets on behalf of large institutional clients of theirs. All in all, the more that, you know, the larger banks do get into our space and, and become more prevalent, the more adoption we're going to see. Right. And the better, I think, overall for the general crypto movement. So I'm, you know, one of those proponents of competition. I, I think it's great for us, great for the space. Um, but, yeah, we'll see kind of how the how the world plays out in the next couple of years. Good. Now, the strength of your organization, you touched upon it, Jean, as well. Um, are you going to publish your financial statements going forward? Because I think that with your uh, equity base that you have, you give a lot of comfort if you do that. I, I have to check to see if we're going to be publishing full financials, you know, on a, on a call it monthly or quarterly basis. Uh, we're still private, right? We're not you know, public yet, but we do release, you know, some larger kind of KPI stats, things like revenue, AUM, total clients, kind of total uh, loans issued, you know, things of that nature. And we'll continue to do that through the course of this year uh, on our website to give as much transparency as possible. One of our kind of mission statements internally as a company is transparency builds trust. So, you know, the more that we can share and the more that we can be, you know, open with how we operate our practices, our risk management, coming on podcasts like this and, you know, talking to you guys about things of this nature, you know, the more trust we'll build. And that's the most important thing, in my opinion, to growing a successful business within crypto or fintech in general is your customer base needs to trust your product, you know, hands down. And, you know, that's what we're here to, to do. Okay. Uh, one of our concerns as well is... Um the security of holding the cryptos and the wallets. What happens if I lose the password? What happens if uh, somebody steals my wallet or my I get hacked? Therefore, um, if 
I deposit the bitcoins or the, the any other cryptos with you. In that sense, I am secure. It's like putting cash instead of keeping it at home. You put it um, in the bank and you get a return. Now, that's very good because there are other uh, companies that uh, keeps your, that they keep your crypto safe, but you have to pay for the service. Mm-hmm. In your case, um, you not only not pay uh, for the service, but you get a return, which feels uh, quite good. Too good, maybe, <laughs> but uh, you are confirming that uh, it's possible. One thing that John mentioned was, okay, you lose the possession. They are no longer under your control, the cryptos. Therefore, in that case, I am giving to you the cryptos and you are giving me a sort of IOU, an obligation to repay. Now, how strong is that obligation to repay? How, uh, how strong in the sense that if something happens, you will have the money, you touched upon it earlier on, and I think you gave quite a lot of comfort uh, how, how you described it. Therefore, that's a very important issue. And I think that for security's sake, I think it's important that people do not get overly worried mm. by keeping this wallet that at a certain moment you think that you are comfortable owning so much cryptos and so much money. All of us are, then you lose everything. What are your comments on this? You know, when you create a BlockFi account and you're issued a wallet, right? Let's say a Bitcoin wallet. You know, any Bitcoin that you deposit into that wallet, again, is custodied with, it, you know, in a, in a cold storage with Gemini. So physically, literally impossible to get to. We provide a, a, a few different security measures that I would suggest and I always urge everybody that creates a BlockFi account to, to enable. The first is what's called two-factor authentication. So two-factor authentication is the ability for only the account holder right, to receive a code through a particular authentication service. We use Google uh, I believe one other, where if you do not have that code, right, it's a six-digit code. So you put your name, your email, your password, and then you have to put a six-digit code. If you don't have that six-digit code, you can't log in, right? So it adds a very additional, like, deeper element of security where somebody can't just steal your password or, you know, figure out what your password is to log in. They also have to have the two-factor authentication code, which is only available to you on your device. So that's that's one. The other is we have uh, allow listing. So allow listing is uh, withdrawing. You can only effectively turning allow listing on allows you to only withdraw your funds to particular wallets that you've allowed uh, within our platform. And you can't add any more wallets to your allow listing list unless you enter in your 2FA or your password. Right or password to 2FA if you're enabled 2FA, which I suggest everyone does. So that adds another layer of security. So for some crazy reason, somebody can get in and then they want to withdraw. They can't withdraw to a wallet that's own, you know, that's their own because they would, wouldn't be able to add it. Um, so there's a lot there that we're doing. We've never seen that happen, by the way, like people getting that, that far uh, into the process. 
And, you know, our security team is continuously taking measures to, you know, make the product even stronger than it already is. So that's kind of on the security piece. There was another kind of part of your question, I think, which was around obligation. And, you know, for us, right, crypto is, is you know, it's fungible, right? So when you transfer or deposit crypto into our platform, we are obligated to return you the exact amount or whatever the exact amount plus whatever interest is uh, has accumulated, right? So if you transfer 10, let's say, Bitcoin on a BlockFi, right? As soon as you require to receive that 10 Bitcoin back, we are legally responsible pursuant to our terms to re- uh, give that to you, right? That's, that's the, the concept of obligation. It's very similar to the way that when you put cash in a bank account, they're also uh, obligated to return you the same amount. Uh, and then also with, with interest on top if, if need be. So, you know, I think that, that is kind of the, you know, from a legal perspective, you know, we want to make sure everyone's covered. And, you know, from a return perspective, right, your, whatever you put on our platform plus interest is you're legally, you know, pursuant to receive that if you elect to deposit or to take funds off the platform. And uh, if somebody deposits cryptos for one year, two years terms, can you get a higher rate of interest in return or not? So right now we don't have anything. We don't have any sort of uh, lock term, you know, benefits. But those are some things that we're talking about with the team on roadmap for this year. As of now, it's you know the eight point six percent is our highest bracket. And actually, you know what? I take that back. 9.3% is our highest bracket if uh, you're depositing Tether onto our platform. And actually, this is a question that uh, I had discussed with, with John as well. Um, why would I get 9% on that? And I only get quite a low rate on, on Bitcoin if I have more than 2.5, if I remember well. Well, what's the reason for that? Yeah, I mean, we want to make sure that our cost of capital is as efficient as possible, right? So, you know, to be able to pay folks 6% and to be able to pay people 2.5%, we need to have, right, make sure that our blended cost of capital, let's call it 4%, is is low enough where we're lending, you know, Bitcoin out at 8 or 9% and the market starts to get a little bit more competitive. We just want to, you know, kind of control you know, control our, our net interest margin so that all participants within the BlockFi ecosystem are able to earn interest. Um, so that's why we, you know, have a lower fee for, for higher amounts. Therefore, it's not a question of correlation with risk or supply and demand. It is an element of supply and demand into it. It's really like, you know, we are trying to make sure that we could provide a significant amount of yield to all depositors of, of Bitcoin on our platform. And to do that effectively, we just have to be tier tier out uh, different holding amounts. In terms of confidentiality, because this is another aspect of, of cryptos, can, uh, for example, the US government impose on you that you disclose all the holdings or the names of, of holders to the US uh, authorities, for example? I'm not really sure in terms of can they just impose for no reason. I'm sure there are kind of legal or regulatory reasons if they, if we, you know, or if, if companies like us 
you know, don't follow protocol, that they could do that. But we take confidentiality really seriously. We want to make sure that all of our users are protected. Their PII or personal identifiable information is stored and protected from a uh, external use case. So anytime we partner with any third-party vendors or uh, any partners that capacity, we have to go through a very rigorous kind of PII process to make sure that we're not sharing any information externally. So yeah, we take it we take it very seriously. And tax, um, for example, um, non-US residents, for example, if I deposit with you and I earn interest, would there be any tax implications in the US for me? We don't really advise on tax implications for international. I would just check kind of with, you would probably have a better answer than I would, to be honest, from from international accounting perspective with your background. Um, in the U.S., though, there are tax forms that you're required to file. And we have a integration with a company called Taxbit. They're effectively like a tax reporting tool that you can pull your BlockFi account data into. And then we also issue those forms to all of our clients and their statements tab that they can use for filing. So taxes, I think, in, in general are, are slightly gray, but we're hoping to give as much information to all of our customers as humanly possible so that they can file their taxes accordingly. Probably it depends if uh, it is deemed that the interest is being geared on activities in the U.S. There might be some tax implications. And then you have to see the treatment under the double tax treaties that uh, the U.S. would hold with other countries. Do you plan to expand uh, internationally? Yeah, you know, we are already, we have offices in the U.K. We have offices in Singapore. We have an office in Argentina. We're legally allowed to market in about 15 countries. And we've got clients from, I want to say, about 40 countries. So, I would say our geographic footprint internationally is starting to take form. With some of the new capital that we've raised from the Series D, we will be expanding more dramatically in terms of personnel and in terms of you know countries that we're able to, to market in, which I'm really excited about. You mentioned credit cards, um, the introduction and the future of credit cards. Now, um, the price of cryptos varies every every second, <laughs> I would say. Therefore, am I, if I'm going to buy a bicycle worth $1,000, I go with the credit card to pay for it. How does the conversion work? <laughs> yeah, so the way that it works is, let's say you apply for the card and you receive it in the mail. You have a $5,000 credit limit, right? You go to the store and you spend a hundred dollars at, let's say you like spend a hundred dollars at the grocery store. As you swipe, as soon as you swipe, your the system will, your dashboard will say that you've earned 1.5% or a dollar 50, right? Back in Bitcoin. All right. And so what we'll do is we'll take that amount, the dollar 50, and then we'll just purchase Bitcoin, right? For a dollar 50 or whatever the price of Bitcoin is. Whatever that amount of Bitcoin is, call it 0.00000345 or whatever it may be, that amount of Bitcoin then gets deposited in your account. And that just keeps happening all the time. I see. But it doesn't mean, therefore, that I'm buying with Bitcoin. I am earning Bitcoin, but you're not earning, buying with... Yeah, you're, you're buying the Bitcoin with your rewards. 
like your, your your dollar denominator rewards. Therefore, exactly. I would need to deposit cash with you. How how, how does it work? Well, no, because um, it's every time you swipe, right? The reward you're getting is cash. You're getting a cash reward from us, one point five percent. So you're getting you spend a hundred dollars at Whole Foods, and you're getting a one point five or a dollar fifty reward. Of in cash that is immediately being purchased, that is immediately purchasing Bitcoin at the time of spend. So you don't have to do anything, and then you pay down your hundred dollar bill, and you've got your reward, a dollar fifty, in Bitcoin. But to get that credit line, how get, how do I manage that? Yeah, to get the credit line, you just you apply, uh, and you know based on your underwriting requirements, we'll either approve or deny, and then set a limit. Similar to the way you would do it with Amex or you know HSBC or something along those lines. But can I deposit um, a Bitcoin, for example, and get a credit facility against it? That's a great question. Today, you will in the initial launch. No, it is simply like a credit limit associated with our issuing partner. But in the future of this year, we are looking to do some things like lines of credit collateralized by Bitcoin. Right, so different loan product than the interest only right loan collateralized by Bitcoin. This would be a, a line of credit, which could be, I think, really compelling. So my last question um, before I, I uh, hand back to, to Jean, if I am a borrower, therefore these institutions uh, who are buying cryptos, therefore they can buy cryptos, possibly get an uplift you know, in value as, as it's happening right now. They deposit the cryptos with you and they get cash, right? That's great. Yeah, I mean, the, there's a, a unique kind of interest component to our product that I can highlight that I think would be pretty valuable to anyone you know, that, that has a BlockFi account. We have something called interest payment flex in, in our system. So you could deposit Bitcoin right onto BlockFi or transfer Bitcoin onto BlockFi and earn 6% interest denominated in Bitcoin, right? So you're getting Bitcoin interest payments. You could also select USD or any other crypto uh, to get your interest payments in. Or conversely, which we see a lot of people doing who are not necessarily in the space yet but want to dip their toes in, is they deposit USD stablecoin. So they deposit, let's say, you know, 10 or 20 or 50 grand of stablecoin. And the 8.6% in interest gets paid out in Bitcoin. So you're actually accumulating Bitcoin in the form of interest payments versus going out and buying Bitcoin directly. Another, you know, another synthetic way of accumulating some Bitcoin exposure. All right. And coming back to this 6%, what's the reason behind the limit on 2.5 Bitcoin having the 6% while further Bitcoin would earn a lower percentage? Yeah, I think it just goes back to, um, you know, us being able to control supply and demand, utilization of who's borrowing, right? And what's the interest that we need to pay out versus what's the interest that we're getting paid from our client, from our institutional parties, and then being able to effectively kind of lower our cost of capital so that, you know, we can effectively pay interest to all kind of Bitcoin holders on the platform. Why 2.5? I don't necessarily have an answer for that, but the overall kind of ideology is, you know, regards, you know, what I what I just mentioned. 
And on the website, with regards to loan rates, uh, I've noticed that there's a note saying that the published rates are only applicable to U.S. borrowers. I'm not sure if there's there are different rates at the moment for international borrowers, and if that is the case, how would one go about obtaining those rates? Yeah, that's a really good question. I believe our rates are standard across the board. Today, the loans are denominated in USD. We'll be bringing some, hopefully, new currencies onto the platform over the course of this year. Um, and also, I think we'll be able to, we'll be bringing uh, loans denominated in stable coins to the platform at some point this year, too, which will be super valuable for, you know, certain folks, um, you know, who are using the stable coins. Once stable coin kind of payments start to become more of an adopted mainstream topic, which I think they will over the course of the you know, next few years, you know, a stable coin denominated loan will be really interesting. Do you have any plans to do something with regards to staking? It's <sighs> a really good question. I'm asking specifically because a lot of people are using staking to generate yield in the way that, yeah. especially in, in terms of Ethereum, for example, you could put it on BlockFi and earn, I don't know if it's 6% at the moment for Ethereum. Uh, or you can stake it and more or less obtain the same yield or a bit higher at the moment. Yep. I, I would imagine that we will eventually offer some form of DeFi exposure. We definitely see institutional borrowers borrowing Ethereum, you know, ETH for staking purposes, right? In some of these protocols, we can earn like a significant yield over whatever our interest rate is. That's definitely a use case. But as of now, yeah, n- nothing, nothing in that capacity quite yet. Mm-hmm. And with regards to the trading product, how, let's say, I've used Coinbase, I've used Kraken, major exchanges. How would that compare to using BlockFi for trading? Are the fees lower or more expensive? The fees are pretty significantly different. I mean, we, we just charge a small spread in the, in the, in the, uh, the bid-ask of whatever currency you're buying, unlike, you know, 2% or 2% the traditional platform, which is, I think, just kind of ridiculously high. Like the bells and whistles today of the trading functionality are a little bit less than that of the Coinbase and Krakens of the world, but the fees are dramatically less. Um, and trading is something that we're going to be focusing a lot of our time in from a product development standpoint over the course of this year. Okay, that's that's interesting. In terms of a borrower, from the borrower's perspective, what kind of retail borrowers are you seeing? I mean, is it people who are using it for trading into DeFi and all that other stuff? Or is it perhaps the more traditional buying a car, buying a house kind of thing? Yeah, it's it's kind of all over the board. I think um, some people will use it for, you know, tax purposes. Some people will use it for investment purposes. Other folks will use it for more like asset investment purposes. So, you know, investing back into the crypto space or yeah, like things, things like you mentioned earlier, I've seen, you know, folks put deposits down on a house with a loan from BlockFi or a car or, you know, buy an engagement ring or a large kind of like life purchase, something along those lines. Um, and then also too, like our rates are low, right? Because it's securitized lending. So you can use a loan from BlockFi to effectively consolidate some debt and pay down 
some other lines of credit that you might have. You know, if you've got three or four credit cards at a 26% APR, it might make sense to leverage your, your Bitcoin to pay those down. You know, I would see that being as another pretty big avenue for, you know, for, for loan purpose. So they really see it a kind of a different gamut across the board. And in terms of, uh, say, buying a house, okay? I've seen a lot of talk about how that is a tax-efficient way of doing things since you don't get the capital gains tax triggered when you do that. On the other hand, the loans given by BlockFi, if I'm not mistaken, are up to a year long. So mm -hmm. let's say I want to pay it over five, ten years. How would that work in terms of rolling over the loan? Over the yeah, I mean, depending on the collateral balance and kind of where your collateral is from a price perspective, you can refi at the term of your loan, right? So if you wanted to extend, you could. And if not, you just pay the you know principal down at, at maturity. But we see refis all the time. Okay. Yeah, because that would make more sense in the, in the case of, say, a house exactly. purchase. Yeah, because some people don't necessarily, I mean, you wouldn't, you wouldn't particularly structure it like a mortgage where you're paying like fixed over like 30 years or 15 or 10 years. You would structure it more like, uh, you know, think of it more like a kind of an installment loan that you pay over the course of a, yeah, like one, two or three year period where you're paying that initial equity lump sum down, right, over the course of time. And then hopefully, you know, the idea is your Bitcoin or the collateral is just continuing to increase in some, right, for Historically speaking, if you were to approach it that way, and then, you know, your refis just get more effective. Yep. Uh, and with regards to withdrawals, so there's one free withdrawal per month, and then there are withdrawal fees for subsequent withdrawals. Do you plan to introduce maybe an allowance of more than one withdrawal? Uh, from personal experience, I like to make a trial withdrawal first before withdrawing any significant amounts. But that would immediately put me in the paying withdrawal fees category. And secondly, I would also ask how the fees are calculated. For example, if we compare Bitcoin to Litecoin, the fees work out much higher with Bitcoin versus Litecoin. Yeah, the fees are just a yeah, per, like the the percentage of or the denominated amount that uh, you know we have today. And yeah, I think with catastrophic rise and 100 to 200% increases in certain assets, those fees start to add up a little bit. I'm sure the team is kind of looking at those on how we can be a little bit more effective there. I really like your idea on like a trial withdrawal because that just helps kind of sig you know signify that this platform is trustworthy. I can use the platform kind of in and out end-to-end -end user journey to get comfort, right, with putting more on the platform. We may also too, like in the future, start to roll out more kind of tiered, you know, services in terms of today we have private client is one of our tiers, which is if you deposit over, uh, I believe it's 3 million in AUM uh, in BIA, you immediately become a private client. There are like enhanced things for private client. I'm not necessarily sure withdrawal fees waived is one of them, but things like getting exposure to different kind of ARB opportunities. If you're a credit investor, getting exposure to different opportunities there. You know, we do experiment some things on the private client high net worth side in terms of things like open term, Joseph, that you were asking about earlier. So yeah, we'll, we'll see how we develop that over time. Will we be able to find the information about private clients on, online on the web or is it something? Yep. 
Yeah, I can actually right. share. I could share with you guys a one sheeter, and then we do have. Uh, we should have a, a something online. Yeah, if not, if not up right now, it should be going up like within the next couple of weeks. Cool. All right. Well, those are the questions I had from my end. I don't know if my dad has something else to add or y- yourself, Shane. I don't have anything else on my side. Um, you know, I, I one thing I'd love to be able to do is. Uh, you know, get you guys a partner offer, right? We love working with folks like yourself in the space. You know, if anybody, any listener is looking to, you know, open an account with BlockFi, we can uh, give them a, a promotion up to $250 in free Bitcoin, depending on deposit size. So happy to set you guys up with one of those. It's super easy to do. And then, you know, your listeners are able to get that added value by, you know, going through your link. Um, but other than that, no, I thought this was great, guys. I, I really enjoyed talking about what we're doing and building and super exciting to, to hear, you know, A, that you're happy clients and you like using the product, but also B, these are really great questions because we do get these all the time and you're asking the right ones. The way you're thinking about our product is, is the correct way. And it's always great to just talk about why and how we're different and, you know, where we're going to go with, you know, our, our developments over the course of the future. Excellent. Yeah. Thanks. Thanks again for, for joining us and for answering all our questions. I think it's been a very informative podcast and I'm sure our listeners will find it helpful. Uh, for those interested, you can head over to blockfi.com for more information. And I've also reviewed blockfi on my own blog and I'll leave a link to that in the show notes. So thanks again, Shane, for joining us. Great. Thank you, Shane. It was very interesting. Well done. It's been my pleasure, guys. Thank you. See you all. So that's a wrap for this episode. Hope you enjoyed it as much as we did. And as usual, I ask you to leave a five-star review on iTunes if you like the show and all the other shows we've produced so far. Please let us know if there is any other topic that you'd like us to tackle or platform to review. We're very open for hearing from you, your opinions, whether you like the shows we're producing. And yeah, just if you... If you've been listening to this show for the past few episodes or it's the first episode that you listen, we'd really, really appreciate if you could even just get in touch and tell us how you're finding it, what you'd like us to improve and things like that. So the email is podcast at mastermind.fm. Again, podcast at mastermind.fm. And you can also find, find us on Twitter at mastermind.fm. That's it for today from us and see you in the next episode.